You can take your Bibles if you want to and turn back to that passage that Brian just read in First Second Thessalonians. I'm sorry, Second Timothy, chapter one. It's somewhere in the Bible. We're glad for all of you that could be here today. We have several guests from other places, some that have come from uh, the conference yesterday and haven't gone home yet. We're glad to have you. We have people from other other uh, countries. We have uh, folks from Canada here. Uh, we got some people that don't necessarily come all the way from South Africa, but they're here. And of course, we have uh, Phillips is here with us today. Tom and Lisa are missionaries to Mongolia. So uh, they're, they're here. Good to see them. We'll get to be with them a little later on as a church, and uh, we're so grateful to have them. We even have people here from Chatham. So if, <laughs> if they've come from everywhere to, to be here today. So, so grateful you're here. The, uh, for those that have been with us the last few weeks, we've been going through a short series on what every Christian needs to know about certain things. We're banking off of a uh, survey done by Lifeway and Ligonier. They do every other year. It's called the State of Theology Survey. In 2022, came out just a, a month or two ago, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the survey revealed some very startling results that that uh, we're looking at. We, we found that Americans in general and even many evangelicals have virtually no concept of the basic theology, the basic truths of Christianity, the very fundamentals that you have to know. It's a startling uh, survey. So I thought as I was thinking about that, we, I would do a short series on what every Christian needs to know about certain things. So far we've done uh, what every Christian needs to know about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the Bible and about people. And uh, by the way, I'll be putting this in a booklet form for you to, if you want to have that to, to use on your own personal study. And our study today is what everybody and every Christian needs to know about salvation. One of the, uh, one of the qu statements on the questionnaire went like this, God counts a person as righteous not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the only way that we can be saved, become righteous, is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, not by any works that we have done. Uh, we would expect most, Christ, most uh, Americans to can be confused there, but sadly we found that only 57% of evangelicals agreed with that statement, which means virtually half of all those who claim to be evangelicals, the most conservative slice of Christianity, uh, do not understand that salvation is by faith alone, that somehow we have to add works of our own to, to be saved. That's a startling and sad statistic, especially since these people who are evangelicals had to already sign off on several questions that identify an evangelical. One of those questions goes like this, our statements, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. The second uh, statement is like this, very similar, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. And uh, so you had to sign off on those two in order to be an evangelical, and yet 43% of evangelicals turned right around and seemed to be either ignorant of or confused about the issue of how a person becomes a Christian and believe that somehow we have to add our own efforts, our own works to be saved. And the question we have to ask is, why is this discrepancy here? What, what's going on that that many evangelicals seem to be confused on the very basics of salvation? And that has to go back to either bad teaching in the churches that people are going to, or perhaps that people are not listening when the gospel is being presented. If I were to ask you here in a church like this, where we talk about the gospel all the time, 
Do you, uh, if I were to ask you to write down on uh, a piece of paper, maybe you got the notes coming in or whatever, if, you had, if I gave you two minutes to write down how you could tell somebody how to become a Christian, could you do it? Could you write at this very moment, write down uh, this, what a person would have to do? If you had two minutes to do it, could you write that down and do so? Well, I sure hope you could, but I'm sure many of you could not. I hope by the time we're done this morning you can. Uh, the only reason why somebody might not be able to do that if you come to our church regularly is because you're not listening. I do what I call expository preaching, which means I take a text of scripture and I explain that text and help you apply that text. And, but you know, you also have to have expository listeners. You know, and I have I actually have a book called Expository Listening. I taught it here before, nobody listened to it, but but I had it. But you know, we're not good listeners. Most of us are simply not good listeners. We're so distracted by so many things in life, we just don't listen very well. And we can hear the truth over and over and over and simply miss it. Uh, maybe this happened yesterday for some of you. The, your husband, for example, might have been watching the NCAA basketball games. And he's sitting there on the couch uh, eating his popcorn, watching the ball game. And you came in and said, sweetie pie. T tomorrow uh, we have a luncheon engagement with so-and-so and we need to go out for lunch after church with this couple and, and I want you to know that. He says there goes, uh, oh, okay. And then this morning you get up and uh, on your way to church you say, well remember we have a meeting, with, we're going to have lunch with so-and-so today. And he says, what? I haven't heard anything about that. When did this come up? And you say, I told you yesterday when you were on the couch, you didn't tell me that. Well, of course you told him that. He's just a box of rocks dumb sitting there on his couch not listening to you. Does, does that ever happen in your marriage? Does anybody here have that problem? Do you ever? Well, thank you for that hand. I, first, do, do I have a, let's have a revival here. Everybody raise their hand, right? Every, everybody knows what that's about. We don't listen well, even when things are important. It's possible that the gospel has become white noise to you. You've heard it so many times and you think you know what it is, but do you know what it is? Well, I, I trust most of you do, but, but today we're going to go through that together because we want to look at what every Christian must know about salvation. There's virtually nothing more important than this, right? What everybody needs to know about salvation, it, it not only does our life it matter in our life, but it matters for our eternal destiny. We must know what God has to say about salvation. And of course, we could spend weeks on this subject. We're going to pinpoint some essentials today of the gospel. And we're going to start by looking at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, a passage of scripture that I believe is one of the most clear passages in the Bible on, on how to be saved, what the gospel is, but one that is often ignored by, uh, by many and uh, as they go to other passages of scripture. So we're going to look at this. In verse 8, it says, Therefore... Chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So he wants to talk about the gospel, the good news of our salvation. And then he jumps into what that really means. And that's where we want to go here for the next few minutes. And so as he, as, as he talks to Timothy, he's going to give us two accomplishments by Christ on our behalf that define the gospel. Two accomplishments on our behalf. Number one, verse 9, who has saved us. Let's just stop right there. He has saved us. That implies if we need to be saved, that implies we need to be rescued from something. Uh, last week we saw why we need to be rescued. We looked at people. We looked at our, our ruined nature, or the fact that sin has ruined us. Sin has corrupted us. We are dead in our sins. 
and our trespasses. We have no hope in and of ourselves for anything but eternal damnation and judgment. And so we are in desperate strait. We are dead in sin, and therefore that is why we need to be rescued. But most people in this world, and probably some of you in this room today, do not believe you need to be rescued from anything. You're kind of like the people when the, the hurricanes come in from Florida, and the uh, officials say, you need to evacuate, get out of here. And some people say, we're not going anywhere, we're going to tough it out, we're going to stay right in our house, we'll be okay. And then two days later, when the water, floodwaters are surrounding their house, and they're up on top of the roof, suddenly they say, I need to be rescued. And they call for the rescue squads to save their lives. It's not until they recognize their, their, their peril, their horrible situation, their, the, the fact that they're going to die if somebody doesn't rescue them, that they finally reach out. And that's exactly what goes on spiritually in the lives of people. Most people do not realize they need to be rescued from anything. And if you ask, mention that, you need to be saved, they say, saved from what? Okay? And if I do need to be rescued or saved, I'll do it myself. And that's the great problem that people have. They do not see the need of rescue. They do not see their lost condition. They do not see they're ruined by sin. They do not see they're, they're in judgment, under the judgment of God. They do not see their deadness in sin. They're doing just fine the way they are. Maybe on their deathbed they'll mumble some prayer and hopefully get into heaven. Folks, that's not the gospel. And so we need to, to look very carefully at what he means here. But never take for granted, my friends, that the Lord has delivered you from the most awful per perils possible, the greatest ruin possible, and has given you the greatest of all blessings and gifts. That's what the gospel is about. Do you ever feel this way? Once in a while, I'm, I can't live like this very long because I can't stand it, but, I, but I, once in a while I'm, I'm reading something or I'm watching something or I'm involved in somebody's life, and I see their lives just ruined, just wrecked by sin. The, the choices they have made has just devastated everything about them. And if they're not saved, they're going to hell to boot. And I look at these folks and I'm thinking, I'm looking at their lives and the misery that they've caused themselves, the sin that's in their lives causing this misery. And I think about them and I, sometimes I just get kind of emotional. I say to myself, you don't have to live this way. You don't, this does not have to be true of your life. Jesus Christ came to set you free from sin. He came to give you eternal life. And I even think about that in many Christians. We, we, we know Christ, we're saved, but, but we're not living out the gospel. We're not living out this, this gift of, of life that God has given us. And our lives are a mess as a result. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? To think what the Lord has provided for us and how many people reject it or ignore it and live as if it isn't true. And sadly, many Christians are saved, but don't live as if they're saved and that is not what the Lord has come to do for us salvation it's God's rescue plan and he says here and he called us with a holy calling that means the one who called us to himself is holy and that means we're called to a holy life look this verse tells us this little phrase tells us that you would never have come to Jesus Christ if he had not called you and drawn you to himself why? because you were dead in sin because you're, you're blinded to the things of God. Because you have no interest really in God. And because of what we saw last week in Romans chapter 3 verse 11. That no one, no one seeks for God. We sure think we do. A lot of people do. But they don't according to scripture. They don't seek for God. And so unless God reaches out and draws us to him. No one ever comes 
to Jesus Christ. And so it's a holy calling. The Holy One has called us, but He called us to a holy life. Uh, the Christianity, salvation, is not simply a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is a life. It's a, it's a life of holiness. He's called us to, to reflect the very glory of Himself and in, in, in what He's done in our lives. It's a holy calling. He moves on here and talks about this holy calling, this radical life, and he begins to mention four theological truths that we need to get here. And the last time I preached on this passage of Scripture, I, I mentioned that, that, that it's like, kind of like four, four buttons on your shirt. You know, how, you know how you men are? You know, you button the wrong button and the shirt is crooked, and you refuse to admit it. Your wife says, your shirt is crooked. No, it's not. It, it's, it's doing just fine. It's not until we recognize that we need to realign those buttons that we now have a shirt that actually fits. Women never do that, by the way. The men will. It's, it's, a, it's a strange phenomenon of, of that species. <laughs> so here's four theological buttons. You must line up if you are to understand what the Lord has done for you in salvation. Number one, salvation is devoid of any human merit. In verse 9 he goes on, but uh, he says, not according to our works. Every line in this verse is imperative, it's important, it's essential. And he says, not according to our works. The average professing Christian believes that salvation is on the basis of what Christ has done plus what I've added to it myself. And even according to this survey, 43% of evangelicals are confused about this or don't understand that. When I ask people, somebody, people come to me and they say, uh, you know, I want to join the church, they say. And I sit down and I start talking to them. I said, tell, tell me here, why, why would you say you're a Christian? On what basis do you say you're a Christian? Sometimes people will start out this way and I, immediately my heart sinks. Because they say, I'm, well, I'm a Christian because I am a very good person. I do very good things. I go to church, I'm moral, I'm kind. I don't cheat, I'm just, a, I'm just a really good, plus, I was baptized several years ago somewhere, or I went up forward at VBS or, or camp when I was six or seven years old, that's how I know I'm a Christian. And immediately I know I've got work to do. I've got to talk to them about what it really means to be a Christian. Those, none of those things make us a Christian. Those are, those are efforts, those are works that should come perhaps following our salvation, but they do not save us. None of those things save us. What saves us? He says, no works whatsoever. The gospel message is that God saves us apart from any effort of our own. When Martin Luther was asked, what do you, what do you contribute to your salvation? He said, I contribute sin. That's it. I contribute sin and God has to forgive me of that sin. There's nothing I can do to contribute to my own salvation. Until you understand that your salvation is without any merit of your own, you are missing out on the two basic fundamentals of salvation, the first two elements, that you're hopelessly lost in sin and that you can do nothing about it. You can do absolutely nothing about it. Salvation is a gift by God that He grants us, He gives us. Here's a second theological button you need to line up. It's according to God's purpose. It says in verse 9, according to his purpose. That means that God has always had a plan all the way back to eternity past to save us from our sins. 
God was never caught off guard when Adam and Eve fell. He's not caught off guard today. He knows exactly what's going on, and he has had a plan forever. And he has a plan for your life to come to him and to know him as Lord and Savior. And then thirdly, we are, it's according to his grace. The plan tells us that, uh, that he had the plan, what he wanted to do. His purpose tells us that, but grace tells us why. Why is it that the, the Lord Jesus would reach out to you? What do you think he gained by saving you? Do you think you're a special prize to God? Do you think he just needed you for his work in the, in the Christian faith? Or are you something that just had to be had by God? Not at all. God needs nothing. God needs no one. You, he did not do, save you on that basis. He saved you on the basis of his grace and love. And doesn't that humble you? Doesn't that bring humility to your life to think that, that for some reason beyond our capacity to comprehend, the Lord himself reached down and saved me of all people? Why in the world would he give us his grace in that way? And the only way we're saved is by him doing that, by him giving us that grace. Someone gave me a little comic strip the other day. I thought I'd read it to you. This is from Pearls Before Swine. I'm not that familiar with this, but it's a little pig and a mouse. Okay, so real profound. So the little pig is sitting on a mountaintop. Apparently he's a guru of some kind. And the little mouse, I think he's a mouse, could be a rat, I don't know. But he walks up the mountain and he says, Oh, great wise one, do you think I've done enough good things in my life to go to heaven one day? And the uh, guru pig says, What good have you done? And the little mouse says, I've always cleaned the lint screen on the dryer. They come down from the mountain, the little pig looks at the little mouse, and the, pig, the little mouse apparently caught the, the gist. He says, I need more? You know, cleaning the, the lint out of the dryer, is that enough? Apparently not. What is enough? How many good things you have to do to impress God, to earn your own salvation? You cannot do enough. You never can. And so it has to be by grace alone. And notice he says that, we receive that because it's granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's his gift. It's his grant. He gave it to us. We did not earn it. Carl Truman, a well-known heavy-duty theologian, said this, Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. It's not, as, it's not accidents. It's not mistakes, it's a violent, lethal, what do you call it, rebellion against God. Then he says this, biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response to our sin. Grace costs us nothing, but it costs God his son. And that's exactly where he leads for the fourth theological button Revealed by com the coming of Christ in verse 10. But now it has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. See, the thing that uh, the scriptures teach us is that, so that our, our salvation, our faith, is not a bunch of platitudes. It's not philosophy. It's not metaphysics. It's not how to do better with your life. It's not self-help. It's a message that is grounded in historical context. Jesus Christ, my friends, had to come. He had to come to this earth. He had to come for us. 
God had to send his son for us. And he loved us enough to do so. Jesus Christ had to come. Our faith is grounded in historical reality. It happened. Jesus Christ came. And it says here that he was re- has been revealed by the appearing of his son. It is the story of how God became man in order that sinful, lost, hopeless, blind, enslaved people can become the children of God. You get that? Christianity, the gospel, is a story of how God became man in order that sinful, lost, hopeless, blind, enslaved people, that's you and I, can become the children of God. Michael Horton wrote a book some years ago called Christless Christianity in which he accused many Christians of living their life as if Christ didn't actually exist. That, that, that they know they're saved by Christ, but they live as if Christ is not part of their life. That they and their churches should go on having their programs and their ministries and their, 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 whatever they do, their conferences, their sermons or whatever, without Christ even being a part of it. And that's possible. We can get so used to the most wonderful things that we forget that Christ is central to everything and everyone. True Christianity is the good news then about what Jesus Christ has done for us, not what we have done for him. It's a gift that he's granted to us in what we call the gospel. Now let's look at something else here. Let's look at the result of salvation. We've started by looking at the first thing. We, he saved us, but now what is the result of that salvation? First, uh, first of all, he abolished death in verse 10. Jesus Christ, let me read the whole verse. But now, having been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. One of the greatest themes of the New Testament is that Christ came to abolish death, to do away with and and render inoperative all the enemies that have sidetracked your life, that has ruined your life, that has corrupted your life, that has given you uh, an eternal destiny in hell instead of heaven. All those things Jesus Christ has come to conquer. He's come to conquer sin. He's come to conquer Satan and his hordes. He's come to conquer death. Because the wages of sin is death, right? And therefore, he had to conquer sin to conquer death. Death hasn't disappeared yet, obviously. People still die every day. But the seeds of that death is gone. And the fear of that death is gone, according to Hebrews chapter 2. You no longer need to fear death if you know Christ. Because, because the Lord has conquered death. Right now we have, and you know, how, how, we, how we feel about death, how we think about death when it comes close to us is a good barometer of where we are with Christ. Right now we have one of our missionaries who we supported for over 50 years who is near death down in Florida and may very well go home to be at the Lord any time now. His name is Dan McEnroe. Some of you know him. And uh, as uh, I'm getting reports back about Dan, I'm hearing what, what he's saying. There's no fear of death there. There's no concern on his part of what will happen when he dies. He's ready, he says. I want to go home to see my Savior. Isn't that the story of Christ abolishing, destroying death? When William Tyndale, the great translator of the scriptures into English, was martyred, killed, for the, for the reason he translated scripture into the language people could read, he was martyred for that. As they took him to kill him, he didn't cry out, Oh, me, oh, my, I'm going to die here. What an awful thing. I wonder what that's going to be after I die. His last words before he died was, Lord, open the king, uh, open the king of England's eyes. 
And let him see the need for the truth of the Word of God. That's what he cared about. You see, Christ changes everything. He changes our perspective. He changes our destiny. He changes our life. And he changes our thoughts about death because he's abolished death for us. And secondly, he brought, he's brought life and immortality to light in verse 10. He's not only defeated death, he's revealed life. Life and immortality here is, is what he's come to give. It, it, the Lord has given, has opened, he's thrown the floodlights on to life and immortality and what he's come to give us. You know, when I'm here at the church sometimes and, and at late, later at night when it gets dark, and if the lights are off in this building, it's extremely dark. You know, and uh, even, even and it happened many times that even this last week, I decided I'm going to walk down the hallway and not turn on any lights. Some yo-yo left a box in the middle of the, in the, in the uh, uh, yo-yo might not be the right word, but whatever. Uh, it left a box there on the side of the, of the, wherever I was going, and I tripped right over it. That's happened many times to me. I'm not smart enough to turn on the lights. But when I turn on the lights, I see what I tripped over. Then I know what yo-yo left it there, you know? So bitterness, I have to deal with that. But nevertheless, the issue is the lights have been flown, have been given. We're flooded with the light of truth and life and immortality because of Jesus Christ. And we would have never known that if Christ had not come. We would have no concept of life after death. We'd have no concept of life now and how it should be lived. But Christ came and brought life and immortality to life. Salvation should change your life. So that's all from 2 Timothy we're going to look at. I'm going to back off a little bit and return to what I asked you a while ago. If you were given two minutes to write down or give the gospel to somebody, could you do it? Now, I've given you a lot today. This is pretty heavy, actually. I don't expect everybody to regurgitate what I just said today. I hope you'll meditate on it. Uh, you can get the manuscripts offline if you want to. Some of you get them, or you can just write your own notes. But nevertheless, I want to go back to a very simple thing. If you had to give the gospel to someone right now, could you do it? And I encourage you, if, you're, if you can't do this, Write it down in your Bible. Write it down on some notes. Go home and get a tattoo if you have to. But write these four words down so that you remember forevermore what it is you, that salvation is all wrapped around and how you could tell someone to be saved. First of all, the first word we're going to give you is the word God. Where the word God. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3, the angels are worshiping the Lord, and it says in that passage, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31, it says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, the, the gospel starts not with us, but with him. He is holy. He is awesome. He, his glory is what matters. The angels themselves cry out night and day for, about the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God. And you and I, our lives are to reflect that glory. That's why he saves us, to reflect his glory to, to the world around us. And so we start with who God is. Secondly is mankind. We, we as, or you could put in our word sinner if you want to, that we have rebelled against a holy God by sinning against Him, that awful sin that we just mentioned. For Romans 3.23 it, says it well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
That, that's, that's about as clear as it can get, isn't it? Everybody has sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. And therefore, because we worship a holy God, and we are sinful people, we could never be in right relationship with God left to ourselves. It's not possible. And so the first word is God. The second word is, is mankind or sinners or some such word. The third word is Christ. Christ, the Son of God, became man to die in our place. Christ bore our wrath. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The gospel is all about what Jesus Christ has done for us. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He bore the wrath of God for us, so that we would never need to bear that wrath. But that still doesn't make us Christians. We need one more word, and that is the word response or faith. Second, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we come to him for, by faith alone for this salvation. It says in that great passage, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Salvation is always received by faith. Now go with me to second, I, go back, I keep wanting to say second for some reason, but there's only one Ephesians. So go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's, let's trace these four words through this passage. In one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible concerning the gospel, we have these exact four words really traced out for us. And if you were talking to someone about Christ and they were interested and you had some extra time to sit there and, and talk about these things, you might take them right through this passage. Notice the four words. They're not in the exact same order, but they're all there. And this passage just starts with man. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them you, uh, you too all formerly lived in the lust of your, our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice the hopeless situation of humanity in this passage of Scripture. We're lost in sin. We're dead in sin. Even that we're walking according to the, the course of this world. We're walking under the power of the devil himself and the spirit that works among them, we are living in, under the, the mastery of our own lust and desires. We're hopeless, folks. We're by nature the children of wrath. Wow. It doesn't get any uglier than that. This takes us further to the very depths, the very pits of our lost condition. As clearly as any place in the Bible. It's a great place to start. If you think that you can be this person, identified in these three verses, this describes you, and yet somehow you can work your way to salvation, you need to read it again. It's nonsense. It's impossible. That leads us to the second word, which is God. In those famous words, but God, see you're lost and hopeless, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It's all about what God has done. He's shown us his mercy. He, he's taken these hopeless, sinful people dead in their sins and he's had mercied them. He's poured out his mercy on them. 
He has taken people that deserve nothing and given them everything. That's God. And he's done that through Jesus Christ. That's our third word, verse 6. He says, and raised, him up, raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It took the death of Jesus Christ to bring us the gift of salvation. It wasn't a philosophy. It wasn't a, 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 some kind of metaphysics. It wasn't a, a self-help program. It's the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And then what is the response? I just read these verses, but I want to read them again. How do we respond to all of this? How do we respond to the fact that, that, that God who is holy has reached out to sinful people through Jesus Christ? How do we respond to that message? Verse 8, once again, faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. How, how much clearer can you get than that? Our response to all that Christ has done is faith alone. We reach out by faith alone and take his marvelous and wonderful gift of salvation. And by the way, verse 10 is usually left out, but it shouldn't be. He saved us for a purpose. In verse 10 it reads this way, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. We are not saved by works. He makes that clear in verses 8 and 9. But we're saved for good works. The gospel should change us, folks. It should change us. He created us as his masterpiece, his, his workmanship, that we might do good works, that we might walk in them. And therefore, if the gospel has not changed your life, you better go back and take another look. Make sure you're in the faith because it should have changed you. you. You didn't become perfect by any means, but it should have a radical change in the way you think, in your attitude, your actions, your whole life. You've been saved for good works, but not by good works. A few years ago, when I was in South Africa, we have a South African person or two with us today, I saw on a, on a plumber's truck, a van, it went by, this, this advertisement on the side of a plumber's van. It said, there is no place too deep, too dark, or too dirty for us to handle. That's a great slogan for a plumber. Don't want to think about it too long, but it's a great slogan for a plumber. But I thought immediately, being the preacher that I am, you know, I thought, how perfect is that as an example of the gospel? There is no place, there's no person too steeped in their sin, too dark, too ugly, too dirty, too lost, that the Lord doesn't reach down and save them if they take his gift by faith alone. I, I have people talk to me once in a while, I'm just too bad. No, you're not. Jesus Christ died for the worst. Even if you are the worst that ever lived, which is unlikely, Jesus Christ can save you too. That's the message. I want to mention very quickly in passing, while we're here, three false gospels that permeate our society, our world right now. Because if you know the false gospels, sometimes it helps to understand the true gospel. There's three big ones that I've mentioned. Number one is work salvation. We've already handled that pretty well this morning. And most people think they're saved by faith plus works, by Christ plus themselves. That's a false gospel, and that doesn't save anybody. Nobody is saved if they believe that. Secondly, here's another false gospel. The fastest growing uh, 
gospel, the fastest growing evidence or, or wrinkle of Christianity today is not true Christianity, but the prosperity gospel. That's going all over the world right now, all over Africa, all over South America, all over America. It's growing like weeds, but it's not the true gospel, folks. The, the prosperity gospel says this, that if we come to Christ, he'll, he'll give us all, all the things we want in life. Do you, do you have health issues? Come to Jesus. He'll heal you. Do you want success? Come to Jesus. He'll make you successful. Uh, do you want wealth? Come to Jesus. He'll make you rich. Come to him. He'll give you all these desires that you want. That's the gospel. Who wouldn't pray that gospel message? I'll pray for, for salvation because salvation means I get all these goodies. Do you see how far off that is from the gospel we've talked about this morning? The true gospel is the message that you are lost in your sins. You are hopeless. You are dead. You're headed to hell. And only the rescue of Jesus Christ through the cross and resurrection can bring you out of that. That's the gospel. It's not how I can become wealthy, healthy, and wise. That's a false gospel that is being absorbed by so many thousands and millions of people, and they're not truly saved. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? And then there's one more. It's the repentless gospel. This is more closer to our home, I think. And that is that we can turn to Jesus Christ by faith alone and receive his gift of salvation, but we don't have to repent of our sins. We, we don't have to worry about our sins. We, we can go to the Lord and still worship our idols. We can still cling to our sins. But the scriptures teach that we turn from our sins to Jesus Christ. It's not two steps. It's one step, one stream, two sides of one coin. I turn up for my sins. I no longer trust in me and my sins. And I turn to Christ by faith alone. That's a repentless gospel. And there's no such thing. There's no such thing. We need to recognize the bankruptcy of these false gospels if we're involved with them and come to Christ on the basis of the true gospel. I want to talk about one more thing before we're done. I know this is a lot of material today, but I just want to talk quickly about what happens at the moment of salvation. What happens to you when you're saved? And I could uh, spend, I'm going to mention six things. I could spend five messages on each. I'm just going to kind of bullet point them for you and point you in the right direction. What happens when you get saved? Well, first of all, you are redeemed. You are ransomed. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your fertile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with, with the precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. A definition of redemption is the act of God whereby he himself paid as a ransom the price of human sin and purchased sinners to himself through the death of Christ. When George Whitfield, the famous evangelist of the 1700s, was asked by somebody, why are you always preaching that you must be born again? His answer was, because you must be born again. <laughs> it's a really good answer. It's redemption. It's redemption. There's three Greek words I'll throw out for you. You have heard these before from me if you're part of us, but the three words defined what it's about. First word is agorazo, which means that Christ purchased us in the slave market of sin. It comes from the slave world of the first century. He purchased us in the slave market of sin. That's where we were. The second word is ex agorazo, which means he's taken us out of the slave market of sin. And the last word is latruo, which means he has set us free from slavery of sin.
That's redemption. He has set us free from these things. Here's the second word, and that's the word reconciliation. Did you know you're, you are not the friend of God if you're not a Christian? Reconciliation goes like this for if, in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. For if, the, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation means this. Before salvation, we were separated from God and we were his enemy. And now we have been brought near to him. And we're not only his friend, but we're even in his family. That's reconciliation. It's what every unsaved person needs. And when we come to Christ, he reconciles us and makes us his friend. The third word, third and fourth, what happens at the moment of salvation? Justification. That means to be, to be declared righteous. Uh, we are now declared righteous. We're not perfect people. We haven't become righteous in the sense of our everyday life. But he's, he's declared us righteous. He set us free from the penalty of sin. He has forgiven us of our sins. And he's also regenerated us, which means we're new creatures in Christ. That's why if you're a Christian, things should be different about you. You're not what you used to be. You are, you've been given a new nature. You are new people in Christ. You have been regenerated. And then five, the fifth one is a heavenly citizenship. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we have a, whoop, one place too far. Uh-oh. Okay, and can it be? I'll sing that for you. The, the last one, you got it? Okay, thank you. I did that last week. I don't, I'm not smart enough to do these things. Uh, a new family. We become the very children of God. Can you imagine that? First John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What a blessing. What a thing. The great... Songwriter and pastor of an of a earlier generation, the writer of, of Amazing Grace, John Newton, said at the end of his life, after serving the Lord for many, many years, many decades, and he was at the stage of pretty close to death, and he said this, these famous words. He said, my, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That summarizes it very, very well. Folks, as we close our service, if you don't know for sure that you are a Christian on the basis of the gospel we've explained today, please don't go home without talking to myself or one of our leaders about Jesus Christ and how you can know personally that Christ is your Savior. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now for this passage of Scripture and these different things we've looked at today. We thank you for all that we have in Christ, for, for this gospel that we talk about all the time, but sometimes it, it's almost white noise to us. May that not be the case today, Lord. May we fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. May we come to you, Lord, today if we don't know you. And those that do know you, Lord, may, may we go home enthused, excited about what you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing you've done, Lord. How we bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen.